Hello, I'm Alex Bahmed with Below the Radar, a Knowledge Democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host Am Johal is joined by Sabine Bitter, Jeff Dirksen, and Helmut Weber, the three of whom make up Urban Subjects, a cultural research collective formed in 2004 and are based in Vancouver and Vienna. They are in conversation with Am about their approach to researching global urbanism and housing through aesthetic and critical engagement. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi there. Welcome to Below the Radar. I'm really excited to be interviewing friends of mine, collaborators, allies of Helmut Weber with us from Vienna and Sabina Bitter and Jeff Dirksen here in Vancouver. And together, they're part of the collective Urban Subjects. Welcome. I am. I am. Welcome. (laughs) I am. I just thought maybe we can start. We've known each other for quite a long time. We've collaborated and worked on projects together. Uh, Wondering if we can just begin, if you guys could just introduce yourselves as a collective, you know, how you formed and uh, kind of the time period when you were beginning to start working together. That started, I think, around 2004. And background maybe that is that Helmut and I work already since a long time as two artists and we collaborate on a shared artist practice. And then more through practice, we already shared talking about things and reflecting about stuff and working on projects together, which has formalized it with Jeff, who is a writer and a poet and called ourselves Urban Subjects. So it's an extension of our existing practices in some way, just around kind of common approaches and uh, actually a desire between the three of us to think through the contradictions of, you know, what of what's now known as the housing market or housing system so that uh, we could compare the types of housing that's possible and ways of living together that's possible in Vienna and the uh, ways of living together, ways of not living together through the pressures of the housing market in Vancouver. So it did kind of gel around issues of housing and issues of an urban experience. And Jeff, for you, you've spent a lot of time in Vancouver with the writing community and in the visual arts community. I wonder if you can talk a little bit of that background before you started working with urban subjects. Yeah, so of course I was in Vancouver during the 1980s forming with other people forming artist-run centers. So like Art Speak Gallery was a project that came out of the Kootenai School of Writing. And so I was involved in that, that kind of organic connection between emerging artists and emerging poets at that time, which was a really dynamic period to be involved with. So for me, working with Helmut and Sabina on visual representation of urbanism and urban processes really has kind of roots in that. And then the other part um, that I think you're involved in too is this kind of educational or pedagogical project um, such as the Vancouver Flying University that we ended up working on a project together. But the idea of poetry and art as research and also as a form of critique that for me is also centered around collectives and centered around kind of educational practices in a sense. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, uh, what was the first project that all three of you collaborated on together? As far as I remember, I think, and this is very much related uh, what Sabina and Jeff said, that within our practice, we always have been open to other um, colleagues, to other approaches when we did 
quite a lot of residences all over the world. And I think in 2003, we spent half a year in Caracas, in Venezuela, all the three of us together, but not uh, forming the collective yet. And I think then we entered another project in Belgrade. It was about New Belgrade. I think this was one of the first, no, it was not the first. The first was a video we did about Venezuela, about Caracas. And the second was then we did a poster series on the situation in New Belgrade. Yeah, and I know that in the book itself, you were looking at some of the writings of Henri Lefebvre, and, and you guys, all of you have had an interest in his work and wondering if you can speak to how it intersects with the type of work that you were doing in your research. That was in one end, of course, Lefebvre's idea of the production of space, so that space is not a container, but always produced, that space is a process, had, of course, like incredible value for us in terms of thinking also how space is represented. So Lefebvre has this kind of idea of how the different aspects of the understanding of space and representation is one of them. So that was and then discussion around the politics of the right to the city and what that means today and how these ideas can be, you know, looked through in a contemporary condition, led us to a couple of projects. So the publishing of the original Lefebvre text was one um, with the book Autogestion around self-management, which was also uh, kind of linked together our project in uh, our research in Caracas in Venezuela about community councils and how self-organization was happening there. But then also at that time, it was the idea of commons was very much in the public realm and in the way it was discussed. So our first exhibition, not in a traditional sense, but we curated a small show at Artspeak, which was called Not Cheap, which was about the understanding and the possibilities people see right now in their different cities about commons. And we invited just friends of us, friends and colleagues who work on urban issues and political issues or image politics. And they sent us material and we just posted all of those material at a small show in Artspeak mm-hmm. from Not Cheap. Which, yeah, I'll say that was kind of a classic Lefebvrean trialectic situation in a sense where we were looking at not only that, you know, now contested notion of commons that, as Sabina said, was had a different kind of currency back in 2004 when we were doing that, 2006. But we were looking at the relationship between urban enclosures and the process of commons or commoning that came out of that. And we wanted to make sure that it was an international perspective so you could see the different ways that the kind of spread of global capital was creating new forms of enclosures and therefore also new forms of commons, which of course are in some sense an impossibility in North America because of the contested ownership of land and the dispossession, the original dispossession from indigenous people of their land. So we wanted to look at that in a kind of dialectical manner following following Lefebvre. Right, and maybe one sentence more to Lefebvre and his understanding of space was that when we did the publication, we considered, for example, doing a research is also creating or making a kind of social space. And then we thought that actually editing a book, inviting again people who had been part of the research or other authors, again, creates not only a social space, it's also a kind of research format. 
So it was always more from, let's say, from this visual approach towards the writing of Lefebvre. We always tried to reimagine or to imagine what kind of visual form it can take. I remember going to those shows back when they came out, and I really appreciated the linking between the local and the global and the playfulness of it, not just in the theoretical part, but the aesthetic part and how the shows were put up. And of course, we were all here in Vancouver in the pre-Olympic period. And Jeff, you've had a long-standing relationship with the geographer, Neil Smith. He passed away a few years ago, but wondering if you can speak a little bit about the context in which you came to know Neil, because I think it'll help us speak about the Olympic moment in Vancouver, because he arrived here and was part of that conversation as well. Actually, it's a very beautiful moment when I first got to meet Neil, because I was doing at a Fulbright scholarship, working with Peter Hitchcock at the City University of New York. And Peter and I were walking down the hallway talking about Peter's essay on the representation of class and cultural practices. And Neil poked his head out of the door of his office and said, you guys are talking about class. I just finished an essay. And he ran and printed off this essay that was subsequently published later. And then out of that, a kind of friendship formed. And I ended up having a postdoctoral residency at City University of New York at the Center for Place, Culture, and Politics with Neil. And so then the three of us became friends with him, and I started kind of working collaboration, writing about art and urban issues with Neil. So we did one essay on Vancouver as a city that was at that time under pressures from global gentrification. So we looked at gentrification in a global aspect in terms of Vancouver. And then we wrote a few essays about artists as well, or I wrote a few essays with Neil around artists as well. And I think that the um, you know kind of legacy that I would say that maybe affected the three of us with Neil was that the kind of combination of friendship, of solidarity, and of and a kind of unflinching criticality that had a great generosity attached to it as well. So it was a very dynamic time that we were able to spend with Neil from like 2000 to 2003. So he's also in New York during 9-11. So there's lots of discussions around global politics and the effect of urbanism at that moment. And the dynamism of the Center for Place, Culture and Politics, where folks like Christian Parenti was there, who we're close friends with, Stefano Harney, David Harvey was running it at the time. So there's lots of great dialogue also with the geographer Cindy Katz. I think that became a kind of very interesting milieu for us because we were able to discuss with radical geographers kind of the aspects of a poetic suburbanism and also as Helmut was saying around the representation of urban processes as well. Now, so in the pre-Olympic period where we had a chance to collaborate as well, the Vancouver Flying University project at Gallery Gachet, learning from Vancouver at the Western Front. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about those projects for people who might not be familiar with them. Well, it started off with a collaborative project at Gallery Gachet, which is a community gallery in downtown Vancouver, in the downtown east side. And it started off with the idea of kind of image politics, that it was about housing, but then we did not want to use imagery which shows the challenges and the crisis of housing and homelessness and all of that. But we wanted to kind of 
move the politics of representation to the issue of where decisions about housing are made. And we then made those images into large wallpapers and kind of created a setting in the gallery so that it was uh, from floor to ceiling images of the UN, of City Hall, Vancouver, and of all kind of different uh, governmental spaces where decisions about housing are made also represent the kind of scale jump of how these things are decided in a way. Mm -hmm. The poster is up in my office at Woodward's. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the great things because the fabulous photo that Sabina took of Vancouver City Hall was made into a poster that we put up all across the city and heard from folks for years later that it was a, a photo that really represented a particular type and a particular moment of politics for them. And it was a space where people were waiting before the address or the public was invited to address the city council on specific projects. And then we did a second one with a text on it, which said, we declare spaces of housing. And so it was at the same time a demand and a statement about the kind of crucial situation in Vancouver around housing. Yeah, so, but then beside of the kind of visual aesthetic setting in the gallery, we organized and we founded together with you, the Vancouver Flying University, and organized. In retrospect, it was kind of crazy how many events and discussions and what an incredible diverse group of people we got together to see how to make alliances and, yeah, bring ideas and possibilities together before the Olympics. In the Learning from Vancouver project that was at the Western Front, there was a publication that came out of it, Learning from Mega Events. Oh, oh, Helmut's got it right in front of him. Look at that. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that project and your involvement in it. That one came out of the invitation from Elisa Firth Egland, who was putting together a project at Western Front, and it was for us to work with another artist collective, Bick Vanderpool from the Netherlands. So, and they worked together investigating urban processes in cities. So when they came to Vancouver, they were doing the kind of preliminary research and we kind of settled on like the kind of unknowability of Vancouver in some sense from their perspective. So again, it was a project that was similar in a way to Flying University and other projects that we've done that always has like three aspects. So it has the exhibition aspect to it. It had the public programming. We had lots of great talks as well that came out of that and then a publication later. So we took this idea of momentarily of a, a kind of a unit of time or an intensification of time as a way to think about how the city was changing. There'd been particular moments that had shaped Vancouver. So the way that these mega events whether we look at Expo 86 as a mega event and a turning point in uh, how Vancouver became marketized as a space and marketized as a site for global housing. And then also looking at uh, the Olympics as another turning point in that. And just these kind of moments within the history of Vancouver that has shaped it into the, into the type of city, the type of globalized, neoliberalized city that it is today. So the publication, again, was a group of artists and scholars and just approaching the publication collectively and looking for alternative ways of representing urban processes. And I think also different ways of working together as Helmut was pointing out. And also, I think it was one of the very earlier projects. We didn't think it through very much in detail at that time about 
all these issues about education, about knowledge. But somehow it happened that we really could bring together different forms of knowing at that time within the city. I wanted to ask you about, I know you've had a long-standing collaborative and have done work with Camera Austria over the years and one of your projects around the militant image. The militant image started off with a research residency at the Leuphana University in Lüneburg in Germany, where they invited us to work on the history of their campus, which was an old military garrison, which in itself was a very interesting condition to look at. And then being there, we also realized quickly that it was the center very close to the anti-atom protests, to the anti-nuclear protests, which has had an incredible history in Germany. So this was also very close to that. So we had all these different forms of militancy and the history of protest, the history of the Black Bloc and how tactics and strategies were discussed and looked at lots of archival material. So at one point, we kind of switched our focus not onto the subject matter of military or militancy, but rather to see how an image is used and what is the condition of an image to become militant. And that became a framework of research and in, of investigation in a larger way. So we did a publication, uh, the Militant Image Reader, and then we curated an exhibition with lots of international artists at Camera Austria. So it was kind of an ongoing interest in the condition of the image, how to become a militant. And what was interesting there in the terms of the kind of link between Vancouver and the extended moment or the long moment of the Olympics was that a lot of the tactics that police now use for controlling or suppressing protests were developed by the German police around the anti-nuclear power protests. So Kettling was invented there to help contain the so-called black bloc, but there was also great kind of counter tactics that the protesters devised because the police were using helicopters for one of the first times for controlling crowds. So they used this very happy instance of sending up balloons into the air as a kind of celebration, but of course the balloons interfered with the helicopters and the police had to get rid of it. So as a interesting moment of militancy and playfulness and suppression from the police. And Helmut and Sabina did this great archival work of a German photographer called Gunter Zimt, who worked with the anti-atom movement as well. And his work hadn't really been represented, so we're able to put some of his work in the show. And Helmut did some kind of deep archival work around those images. So we were happy to see those recirculating. And just to think through what is the condition that makes an image militant rather than representing militancy, what makes an image militant? Is its circulation, its reception, how it's used with different communities? So again, it's all around this kind of more participatory aspect of representation and the politics of image making and the politics of language and the way that communities and groups use those in particular moments to fight against, let's just say, against the hegemonic bloc. And through these protests in Germany, there was also the moment that a photograph of a protest was the first time ever used in a court case to accuse somebody or to take somebody to court for attempted murder when, you know, those protest photographs. So there was a lot of things invented and, um, yeah. 
Yeah, I'm wondering, you know, in terms of all of you collaborating between Vancouver and Vienna, there's like the geographic challenge and time difference and those types of things. But at the same time, you get to read political or social situation from two sites that you all have a deep relationship to. And wondering from when you started collaborating together to now, how that work has shifted in terms of the collaborative process. Yeah, that's a super interesting question, actually, because in some ways it's just evolved organically in the sense that we tend to follow certain intensities and we tend to you know, want to work a bit outside of official pathways in a sense. We don't go looking for big funding to do projects. We try and integrate it into our lives a little bit more and into communities. But perhaps the way that that's evolved is that we were maybe moved from a form of critique of urban processes and of course a critique of gentrification and of the marketization of all living spaces and then started to contrast more Vienna to Vancouver and looking at the way that the deep history of social housing in Vienna has created a model that the city now is looking to export as a kind of best practice of social housing. So we did start to look at the ways that some of the aspects of Vienna might be able to migrate or be moved to Vancouver to address some of the issues around the housing market and to be used very practically to open, to think of housing as something other than a market here, as something other than a commodity, and to think of the kind of social wealth of housing, which Vienna does in a certain way. And then that, I think, culminated in that show that we worked on with you, Em, at the um, Museum of Vancouver called The Vienna Model, which was an existing show that Helmut and Sabina had helped put together in Vienna, and we helped move that here, and again, had a lot of public programming around it that we collaborated with you on. And so, in a way, I would say that that's a long drift, in a sense, from critique to policy, we still maintain a strong belief in critique, but I think in that instance, we were looking to have some sort of voice or influence in a public sphere that was a bit broader than the types of venues that we were used to working in and preferred to work in. Where Helmet is right now in Vienna, this is an interesting housing project that you've all had involvement in, in terms of a material fact on the ground where you're actually going to be living in or spending time in. And wondering if you can talk a bit about this project as a kind of example that can also be a critique of Vancouver at the same time. And as Jeff mentioned before, it also can be a slightly critique on the policies of housing, even though Vienna is really outstanding in terms of the politics of social housing. But right now we are living in an area which is very close to the Prater, this kind of entertainment and amusement park. And it's a developing area. I think over the next five to 10 years, another 20,000 or 30,000 people will live in this neighborhood. Also for Vienna, it's a kind of new project and how to deal with it. That's the, one of the interesting aspects that we are now living uh, not so much in the history of the old Vienna, but we are really living in an area which might be really the new Vienna. Or actually, you really get the idea if you enter that area, you have no idea if you are right now in Vienna or not. 
that's the one. Uh, maybe Helmut and Sabina, you can talk about the specificity of the housing project itself. So the housing project itself, it's similar to a co-op housing. In German, it's called the Baugruppe. And this is mostly self-organized group who gets together and then proposes to the city a certain kind of model. And so there's all these different ways you can make a case for why this is important to be publicly funded. So there's the intergenerational, there's the queer housing, there's the women-only housing, there's a refugee inclusion house. There's all these different ways. And so our house has some of those kind of ideas on how to live together. And the city of Vienna gave the group basically the land as part of a larger development. And the house was built in a couple of years. It was a really quick project. It's not quite as ambitious as a syndicate housing, which is one of the models in Europe now, which I think is really amazing as a process and as a model to really take the building off the housing market. So it never ever can be financialized or capitalized. In our building, it's also you don't own the apartment, so you can't sell the apartment and make money with it. It's part of kind of a housing association. And it's lots of self-organizing. So, you know, how the stairways are cleaned and how this and that is done. It's a communal decision how we do that. But then it's also some kind of great, you know, groups in the housing. So there's collective housing with large apartments where a group of people live. But then we have one really large apartment where there's four adults living who have Down syndrome. And then they share the big apartment with five students who don't pay any rent, but therefore they kind of take care about the whole household and kind of help support this living together. And we have two apartments where we work with an organization which is called Queer Base, which is a refugee organization for queer people. So we have two apartments, which we all pitch in together. So we all bought this apartment together. And yeah, so similar things like that. Lots of common rooms and lots of common ideas. And it's in process. It's a permanent process. It's never finished. So that I think is quite... Yeah, from the concept of thinking about it to making it happen to how when people actually move in, they use space differently and you have to come up with new ways of being together, I suppose. I mean, what's interesting, too, with this is from the discussions we have, you know, I bring my North American perspective of co-op housing and then try and understand the Baugrupa project through that in some sense and the way that it was organized and the way that we live together. And for me, it's it seems kind of miraculous in the way that it happened and the, the ease that it happened in a sense and uh, and the kind of generosity of everybody in the house and the kind of larger political vision. But you know, Helmut and Sabina, just coming from a different housing context, of course, have looked for a little more critical aspects around it. So there's, as Sabina said, there's the syndicate model, which takes the building and the space out of any form of financialization. So it's been interesting as the three of us planned our kind of collective living space, you know, amongst all the other collective and space of the building, just to think through what our expectations and possibilities are. So it was a real not clash of frames, but it was interesting to try and overlay those frames together around what the possible horizon of living together could be. And because you asked before what, you know, living between Vancouver and Vienna, one of the really amazing 
benefits of that or you know knowing that this is a very privileged situation but to compare the things which are happening in each country and in each city to me that's so amazing because you can see how that there are different possibilities in different places so if I think about in Vienna, you know, what housing means, like two thirds of the whole housing stock in Vienna is somewhat publicly financed, which is totally normal. And we criticize everything which, you know, goes towards kind of neoliberal politics and everything. In Vancouver, this is so unimaginable. And it's totally great to see this kind of agency, which would be possible. And, you know, the other way around, if I think of, you know, the kind of idea of multiculturalism with all its critique of decolonization and all of these things happening here in Canada and in Vancouver, this is something which is so, you know, not in the midst of this discussion in Vienna and in Austria. So then I'm like amazed that this could, you know, in Vienna, it's still this very kind of, I don't know, white male dominated space, which is thinking Vancouver is not as, as crucial as it is in Vienna. So it's this kind of agency you get that things are possible because you see it realized in the other place. It's kind of amazing and that it goes back and forth. It's not that the one is so good. Whatever your critiques of Vienna are, when you come back to Vancouver, it looks pretty good, doesn't it? <laughs> Almost it does, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the Stars Above Us project. Stars Above Us was really great. The Public Art Committee in Lower Austria got together and thought of a project to do during the pandemic because everything is closed and much harsher than in Canada. It was in Austria. So they invited artists to design a postcard, which then the committee would send to a specific group of people. So, and it was a sort of a gesture of thank you or a gesture of appreciation during the pandemic. So a few people, you know, sort of, okay, healthcare workers or people in homes or in hospitals. And then you design a postcard to bring, you know, gesture of thank you. And then we were thinking that maybe the gesture itself should be given to somebody. And then the discussion, of course, was about the whole crucial issue of refugees and the camps in Greece and all of the European total crisis of that kind of went into the background through the pandemic and the coronavirus. So, and then it was also the danger that in this one like huge asylum seeking center in Austria, in Treiskirchen, where every refugee seeker, every asylum seeking person is held during the first process, which can take for quite a while. And then there was the danger, of course, also the virus would break out there and that it would become a hotspot. So then we thought instead of designing postcards to send to refugees or asylum seeking folks, we thought the gesture of sending a postcard should be actually handed over to also kind of change the, the way of uh, in a way, give agency. So we designed a postcard called the stars above us with the night sky above the center for asylum seekers and insisted on that they already have to be postmarked to be sent to every country in the world where there is the post office delivering to. So that was kind of a switch of not we send a postcard to somebody, but those folks have the possibility themselves to send their postcard to somebody. We were thinking of the stars above as a kind of uh, old school GPS in a sense that it would indicate to people where the asylum seekers were actually placed, grounded. 
also during the times of the corona, during the lockdown, of course, a lot of solidarity evolved and emerged. But at the same time, many people had been aware that this solidarity is still emerging between the more established parts of the society of the people. So I think it was also in terms of the project, it was good to somehow to really address this uh, slogan, leave no one behind, which was a kind of demand, of course. And I think people appreciated this kind of, you know, not just saying thank you, but also giving the possibility to do something by oneself. And what are you guys working now in terms of uh, projects in the future? Or what are you thinking about working on? There are a few avenues. Helmut and I work in collaboration with some folks in Vancouver here. June Scudelland with Trina Chambers. We look at SFU's Burnaby campus, that fascinating, challenged Arthur Erickson, the massive, modernist, brutalist building, and how that relates historically to radical pedagogy in the 60s, but furthermore, how it can relate to indigenous knowledge or indigenous pedagogy today. So we're doing a couple of interviews and we had quite a few events planned, but they had to be all canceled during the pandemic. So now we have a series of photographs, which will be shown in Berlin in January, the first time, which we're excited about. So pedagogy, performing archives, performing learning, radical pedagogies and modernist architecture is kind of one ongoing thing. For us, but then as urban subjects, we also work on, on time as one thing also coming up during the pandemic where space is so restricted. So uh, public time is the topic and we curate an exhibition for Camera Austria again. And it's called, If Time is Still Alive, Counter Temporalities. So that's also ongoing. Yeah, I've been listening to some lectures by Karen Barad and uh, Ellie During, who's a student of Bedu's but comes from a physics background, some really interesting stuff over the, the years. So I'm really looking forward to seeing where that goes. But Jeff, Jeff's going to read us a poem to take us home. <laughs> well, I'm uh, prompting a van to, to step into my bookshelves and grab something. And my temptation, of course, like Roger Farr's great new book about about protest in the city or Cecily Nicholson's Wayside Sang. But I've been turning back to particular anti-fascist moments just to try and understand our unfortunate present. One of my favorite all-time poets, Louis Zukowski, the great objectivist writer who began writing in the 1920s, has a great anti-fascist poem from the 30s that I think speaks to our present moment. It's called The Immediate Aim. It's in his book, Collected Shorter Poems, called All. But I'll just read the last section of it. Shanty on the river with one window, the unemployed having a home has no home and no nag protected by the United States flag. Each animal, his own grave digger, almost sings. Who will walk out against the social and political order of things? I think it's such a great little poem about the possibility of political action at a moment of uh, rising fascism. Helmut, Sabina, Jeff, thanks so much for joining us on Below the Radar today. Yeah. And thank you for having us. Mm -hmm. 
Transatlantik. <lacht> Below the Radar is a knowledge democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Thank you for joining us to hear from Sabine, Jeff, and Helmut about their collaborative projects through Urban Subjects. You can find links to some of the programs and publications they've discussed in the show notes. Thanks again, and see you next time on Below the Radar.